BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, August 29th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. We're also on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show if you don't already on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. They bring the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. They have over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and many other topics. And they're available for digital download and streaming or on old-fashioned DVDs and CDs. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses. It's called Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Professor Mark Leary. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. So I think lately people have just been fixated on the news about this brutally violent Islamist organization that is fighting in Iraq and Syria called ISIS. And people here in the U.S. are totally shocked by many things about them, including, perhaps most of all, the idea that there are some Americans who actually want to go and join such a group and fight for it. Apparently, according to the U.S. government, there are dozens of such people. One of them is a man who reportedly died in combat in Syria this week, named Douglas MacArthur McCain. He grew up in Minnesota. He played basketball. He wanted to be a rapper. He sounds like a pretty normal guy, basically. So a lot of people, I think, want to know, how is this possible? And it turns out we know a lot about the mindsets of violent extremists and about why extreme ideologies like militant Islam do successfully attract some people, in fact, a lot of people. And I've known for a long time a great psychologist at the University of Maryland who works directly on this. His name is Ari Kruglansky, and he he literally studies these people. And in my interview with him on this week's show, here's what he said makes them tick. Well, I think these are primarily young people, and uh, it's uh, to a large extent a question of self-definition, a positive self-identity, quest for significance. Uh, these uh, 
extreme ideologies have a twofold uh, type of appeal. First of all, they are very coherent, black and white, right or wrong. Secondly, they afford the possibility of uh, uh, becoming very unique and uh, and the part of a larger whole uh, that uh, requires uh, courage, uh, requires uh, uh, taking risks, uh, requires uh, uh, bravery, requires uh, self-sacrifice. And the, the, the glory of it is that you become somebody very significant, uh, become a hero, possibly a martyr. Indre, what do you think? You know, yeah, it's, this is always a, a difficult topic, of course, because it's charged with so many consequences for the rest of us. But I think, you know, what he's describing essentially is the adolescent mind, right, before the prefrontal cortex has really come fully online. And we know that the prefrontal cortex, our rational decision maker, doesn't become fully developed until, you know, in the people are after their, their teenage years. So it makes a lot of sense that they're sort of seeking something on the extremes uh, that really is kind of black and white, right or wrong, as they're trying to you know, figure out how their, their, their brains are going to function rationally in the future. But some people, in effect, stay in that state for longer, and it, it might characterize them over their whole life, lifetimes in terms of the black and white thinking. Well, that's what's really interesting about, you know, as he talks about um, the difference between people who maintain that rigid state of thought and people who might move towards a more nuanced thought process and, you know, how that develops, whether it's how much of it is cultural versus, you know, uh, coming from other factors that maybe are more biological. Well, we will get to that. Um, So first, some science in the news. Indre, I'll let you introduce our first topic of discussion. Sure. I came across this new Pew report on social media and its effects on people exchanging opinions. And, you know, I think like, like most of us, I thought that things like Twitter and Facebook and other social media outlets actually encouraged people to share their opinions and even maybe start, uh, you know, get get part of a national conversation, even on topics that are kind of difficult. I mean, it seems to me that it's a lot easier to, you know, bring up a dissenting opinion on Twitter than it is, say, around the Thanksgiving dinner table. Um, But I'm completely wrong. According to this Pew uh, study, it turns out that they surveyed about 1800 adults, and they took a question um, that actually has people fairly evenly divided. And this this is the issue is whether or not Edward Snowden's revelations of government surveillance of Americans' phones and email records, you know, was was something that is a good thing, essentially, for the public or a bad thing. And it, and it turns out when you first take a poll, Americans are pretty divided. So, for instance, in one survey, they found that 44% say the release of classified information harms the public, um, while 49% said that it serves the public interest. So this is an issue that, you know, is fairly evenly split amongst most people. And so you'd think that social media would be a place where people would actually be interested in talking t- about this this issue and, and other issues that are similar. But it turns out that people were less willing to discuss the Snowden story in social media than they were in person. That really surprised me. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it really underscores the fact that social media, social media does not provide an alternative platform for people who are not willing to discuss the story in person. Um, and in fact, that people were more willing to share their views if they thought their audience agreed with them. So in the case of which you, you put out an opinion and you get 
a lot of people on Facebook say, you know, questioning what it is that you mean, that actually kind of makes it silences you, you know, it, it makes you less likely to talk about that particular issue in any other forum, including in person, um, which is which is really interesting. So in some ways, you could argue that Facebook and Twitter, instead of creating a forum for discussion, actually creates what they call a spiral of silence, that is, you know, making people less likely to talk about these topics. Well, I think this is maybe in part because we all know that trolls are the root of all evil. And, you know, if you say something with an opinion in social media, you're going to be in an argument with an idiot. And it's not a good use of your time. And it makes you distrust all of humanity. So people have learned that over the last, you know, decade or more with this thing called the Internet. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see if people are really looking at this kind of oligarchy of of trolls, you know, a small minority of people who are out there putting out dissenting opinions, who are being very argumentative and in many ways threatening and harassing, um, whether they, because of social media, really have hijacked a lot of the national conversation about topics that we really need to be talking about. Yeah, I think... I think it's clear that they have. It's a small number of people who gleefully do this and enjoy it. Uh, and unless you have a major troll patrol, you know, you just can't have a good discussion anymore. So, yeah, I mean, I thought I had a pretty thick skin, especially having been on the Oprah Winfrey network and, and, you know, having been part of a relatively controversial television show. But, you know, it still affects me when I, when I see negative comments from people and, you know, I'm human like that. And, and, you know, I, I just thought it was me, but apparently it's most people. There's a block button and an unfriend button. That's my <laughs> policy anyway. So there was a fascinating piece in Wired uh, that I, honestly, I'm just setting you up to talk about it because you know more about than me. But it's about how filmmakers, and this is not in and of itself new, filmmakers getting together with psychologists and neuroscientists, which they do all the time. But in this case, it was to study visual perception so that they can figure out what people are actually looking at on the screen and that, in turn, helps the filmmakers determine when they can use things like CGI and when they can't, when it's going to look plausible enough that people are not going to be like, oh, that's crap, that's not real, um, whereas um, when you can actually use it. And so it looks like you can fool the audience with fake backgrounds. You can fool them with like a fake crowd of people. You cannot fool them with fake faces. You know, their human vision and our facial recognition is too discerning for filmmakers to basically fabricate. Um, but the gist is that learning how the way the mind works will let filmmakers basically decide what to spend money on, right? <laughs> you know, where they, have to, where they have to actually pony up and where they can cut corners. Uh, and in this article, as in Wired, the director of Iron Man 2, John Favreau, is quoted saying, the best visual effects tool is the brains of the audience. They will stitch things together so that they make sense. Yeah, this is like one of my favorite parts about the brain is the fact that it actually fills in information for you all the time. And and when you stop to really think about how the different senses work and even how other higher cognitive processes in your brain work, it's really amazing how little information the brain actually tracks about the world and how much it actually fills in from previous experience and, you know, from from the way that we've evolved to experience the world. So I love this kind of stuff. And, and I, I would actually argue that in just as much as the filmmakers are going to be using neuroscience to figure out how to save money, neuroscience is going to benefit from the filmmakers teaching us exactly how the brain fills in these details and what people look at. Like, uh, you know, in that Wired piece, they talk about eye tracking studies of watching, you know, where people are, are 
paying attention by tracking their eye movements when they're watching a certain clip. And, you know, I've done a little bit of work on eye movements, and I feel like they really can tell you a lot about what it is that we are paying attention to. And so, you know, seeing that people really are paying attention to things like faces and things that are real, as opposed to the things that are CGI, is interesting from both perspectives. And I think, you know, both sides can gain a lot from it. So I'm really excited about this collaboration. Yeah. And the uh, this is all involuntary. So I guess the only thing that you could actually do is if you wanted to not enjoy a movie, you could go and you could look like fixedly at the top left corner of the screen and or the bottom left corner of the screen and notice all the things that don't look real while ignoring the characters. But your your movie experience would suck. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, I'm sure there are people now who will do that. <laughs> um, but I also think that there are different categories of people who have different uh, ways of looking at the world. So for example, one subset of patients that I studied are patients with, with a type of dementia in which they lose the ability to communicate verbally. It's called semantic dementia. And they actually lose concepts uh, over time as their brain degenerates. And I did an eye tracking study with them. And I found that in fact, how they view the world is very different as their disease progresses. So they look at parts of the world that you and I would find uninteresting. And they don't look at parts of the world that are related to concepts. So let me give you an example. I have one image of train tracks receding into the distance. And like all of us look to where the train is coming from. That's like the salient part of the image. But these patients don't. They look at other parts of the image. So it'd be really interesting to see if like patients who watch these movies also look at different things. And, and actually, you know, do they find the movies less compelling, for example, because they do get uh, more into the sort of CGI aspects. Just Testable hypothesis. One more interesting way of looking at it. Well, you should, you should set, set up that study. You know, put on eye tracker. Anyway, you can imagine. <laughs> I'm dialing my phone right now to Jean Favreau. <laughs> right. Okay. So this is the second time we've had uh, eye trackers come up. The last time was in relation to political ideology and where your eyes go. So you could also do that study in the movie theater. Yeah, they're a window into your soul, Chris. Yes, that's right. So with that, let us take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Ari Kruglansky about the minds of violent extremists and terrorists. Since you're listening to Inquiring Minds, it's probably very likely that you're the kind of person that is always interested in new things and never wants to stop learning. So that's why we think that you would probably enjoy The Great Courses just as much as we do here at Inquiring Minds. The Great Courses has been in production for over 20 years, and they have a whole roster of professors who are experts in their field who deliver engaging, top-notch lectures. Right, and we've recently both been listening to one of them, Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by the Duke social psychologist Mark Leary. And one of those lectures is super apropos, well, many of them are, to this week's show. But there's one about basically group prejudice and where it comes from and why it is so impossible to eradicate, why people just very, very naturally sort themselves into in-groups and out-groups and experiments showing that even, you know, if you set up an experiment with groups and you say that that group is defined by the stupidest little attribute ever, like they paint their toenail, one of one of their toenails pink and, and the other group doesn't, then they will start to, you know, come up with stereotypes about <laughs> pink toenail people and not pink toenail people <laughs> and stuff like that. I mean, like, we are group animals and I think that that explains uh, a significant part of what we're about to hear with, uh, with how terrorism forms and why violent ideologies end up being appealing to some people. So, it's a great lecture. You should totally check it out. Absolutely. And, and just so that we're clear, I'm a not pink nail polish person. So uh, 
uh, just putting that out there. But for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. You can order the course that we've been listening to, Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Dr. Mark Leary, and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% savings is only available for a short amount of time, so don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Ari Kruglansky, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Very nice to be here, Chris. Good to uh, talk to you again. Good to talk to you as well. So, as you know, we asked you on because of the huge volume of attention, and rightly so, to this group ISIS, also sometimes known as the Islamic State. It's a Sunni jihadist group that has been fighting in Iraq and Syria. And much of the media has focused lately on this phenomenon of Westerners who actually want to go and join uh, this violent movement. And the United States government says there are dozens of them who have done this. You've studied these kinds of people. So what makes them tick? Well, I think these are primarily young people. And uh, it's, uh, to a large extent, a question of self-definition, a positive self-identity, quest for significance. Uh, these uh, extreme ideologies have a twofold uh, type of appeal. First of all, they are very coherent, black and white, right or wrong. Secondly, they afford the possibility of uh, uh, becoming very unique and uh, and the part of a larger whole uh, that uh, requires courage, uh, requires uh, uh, taking risks, uh, requires uh, uh, bravery, requires uh, self-sacrifice. And the, the, the glory of it is that you become somebody very significant, uh, become a hero, possibly a martyr. And this kind of motivation is very appealing to young people, especially those whose sense of uh, self-identity is still in flux, uh, still incoherent. They still do not know who they are, and uh, they would like to uh, become somebody that uh, they can have uh, respect uh, uh, and others can have respect for. Uh, you know, from, from the time of crusades, where young people flocked uh, to fight for uh, the Christian cause, uh, more recently, the war in Spain against the dictatorship of Franco, where uh, thousands of Westerners volunteered uh, for the fight, uh, till uh, these days, the, the Mujahideen against the Soviets, uh, uh, volunteers to fight in Iraq, uh, uh, volunteers for Al-Qaeda, and now these foreign fighters who uh, volunteer for ISIS, uh, pretty much the same kind of psychology. Let's take an example, because we have actually just this week gotten news about a man named Douglas MacArthur McCain, who grew up uh, in Minnesota. He was a basketball player. He wanted to be a rapper. Uh, recently, his body was found in Syria, uh, and it turned out he had been fighting for ISIS. He left behind all this stuff about himself and his views on social media, and that includes a Twitter account where his bio said, it's Islam over everything. What does that tell us about him? Well, you know, uh, he he actually uh, uh, said that he's nothing without Allah. So he found his self-identity, his self-definition in becoming a Muslim and fighting for Islam. You know, there, there are two things of interest here. One is, why does one uh, join a movement? And once one joins a movement like that, uh, Islamist movement, uh, what does one 
uh, what implication it has for one's behavior. And I think a movement, an Islamist movement, as I said before, is characterized by a great uh, deal of structure and closure and coherence. You know exactly uh, what is right and what is wrong, uh, how to behave in every situation. It's very uh, normative and constraining. And uh, a person who is uh, uh, a bit uncertain, uh, has a need for closure, uh, would be very attracted to a, a, an ideology of that kind. Secondly, once you are, especially when you are in com- a convert to a different religion, you feel somewhat marginalized. You're not quite, you were not born a Muslim, you just became a Muslim. Uh, so you have a motivation to distinguish yourself within that community to show your brethren in faith uh, how good a Muslim you are. And therefore, you become holier than thou, holier than the Pope. And you are particularly uh, attracted to the possibility of defending your newly founded faith by self-sacrifice, by fighting, by taking risk, and so on. So this means that these people like that aren't necessarily, they, don't, they might not even know a lot about uh, Islam. For instance, um, I just read that two other jihadis, these were two British men um, who went to fight in Syria last year. Their names were, if I can get this right, Yusuf Sarwar and Mohammed Ahmed. Apparently, I don't know how we know this, but um, it's been reported in the media that they went on Amazon.com and they ordered the book Islam for Dummies and the Quran for Dummies. So they didn't know (laughs) about the religion very much. This is extremely interesting and it shows that the ideology uh, plays a part of justifying uh, their motivational quest. It's a, it's a, a, providing the means to the goals that they have, which is the, the goal of uh, doing something significant, uh, acquiring a very positive, uh, respectable self-identity. So whatever that means is they do not have to know much about Islam or any other ideology as long as it offers this opportunity to become a hero or a martyr. I've just recently had a, a chat with a colleague who remembered how he uh, he joined the free Tibet movement without even knowing where Tibet is on the map. So again, you know, an ideology that that where whatever it is, as long as it promises you to fulfill your deep quest of of becoming a significant person, uh, that has a tremendous appeal. So let's let's get um, to your theory for explaining the psychology of why some people feel uh, the need to join a movement where everything is black and white. And this is your theory of cognitive closure. And so maybe you can lay it out a little bit. I understand that it goes back a long way and it comes out of research where people were actually trying to explain fascist movements and things like that. Right. I think, you know, the the theory talks about uh, the idea of clarity as something that uh, is of, of great appeal as opposed to ambiguity and confusion. And especially when confusion reigns, for example, when you are a teenager, uh, a young person without a very clear guidance as to where you're going and what you will become, uh, there's a lot of confusion and un- aversive uncertainty. And uh, in, in those situations, a clear-cut ideology, a clear-cut set of beliefs is gr- greatly appealing. There's also a, another type of appeal, which is 
to be able to uh, do something within the framework of the ideology that would establish you as an important person. So it's not only a need for closure, but a need for a specific closure, a closure that is positive to your self-esteem, self-regard. And these uh, uh, black and white ideologies contain both components. They both provide coherence. They are very clear as to what uh, what is right and wrong, good and bad, and also they have a very clear guidelines as to what you ought to do in order to become a very worthwhile person that's going to be admired by your co-believers and uh, accorded respect and, and veneration. So I understand this trait, need for closure. I mean, everybody has it to some extent, but we're pro- presuming that these people might ha- be really strongly characterized by it. That's right. Uh, first of all, different people have different uh, degrees of craving for closure, uh, stably across the lifespan. But also there are situations in which closure and certainty are particularly appealing. And this is during a life phase transition when you uh, are transformed from a child to an adult as uh, in adolescence. Or uh, when you are, uh, uh, when, when you're tra- tra- uh, transitioning from uh, uh, participating in the workforce to retirement, uh, or when you enter marriage, or uh, there are all these situations where things seem to be ambiguous and ambiguity is disconcerting. In those situations, uh, the need for closure is particularly strong. And adolescence is one of the most uh, clear example of this uh, uh, confusion uh, about uh, transition from childhood to adulthood. And you want to make that transition uh, and to clarify things to yourself. And there, that's the, po- the point at which uh, extreme ideologies become uh, extremely uh, appealing. And, uh, uh, you know, in point of fact, the majority of terrorists, the majority of suicide bombers, for example, are b- between the ages of 18 and 23. So this is exactly the time where these things are of, uh, of particular consequence. But now, of course, not everybody goes that far, right? So need for closure, I mean, it's present in, in really extreme um, radicals. But I mean, it's also present in more moderate degrees all throughout it's, I guess it's a continuum, basically. It is a continuum. It is a continuum. But I think at at different points in time during life transitions, uh, you move uh, toward greater need for closure. And of course, need for closure in and of itself does not suggest that you're going to become a violent terrorist. That only means that you're going to be more uh, susceptible to black and white thinking. And that black, black and white thinking uh, can be violent or can be very pro-social. Uh, you can, you know, become a, a monk or become a, a, a do-gooder or become a person that sacrifices their life for the, the betterment of humanity. Uh, that said, there is something uh, primordial about violence and the glory of fighting. Uh, this has been celebrated by writers and, and thinkers uh, uh, over the ages. For example, uh, Henry V in Shakespeare's uh, in Shakespeare's play, uh, talks to to, uh, to his troops before the Battle of Agincourt, the Saint Crespin speech, and he uh, uh, he uh, emphasizes the the glory that would come from uh, 
people fighting with him, that they will be remembered for generations, that their children and grandchildren will remember their uh, their names and their deeds and so forth. And this kind of glory that attaches to violence is very primordial and trumps, to, to a large extent, alternative ways of attaining significance. It's quick. It uh, corresponds to your uh, your testosterone. Uh, it's uh, primordial. That's how animals solve their conflicts. That's how little children solve their conflicts. So there is something very, very primordial in all of us that uh, adulates uh, uh, glory through uh, through violence. So how do we know? I mean, it's not like a terrorist or a you know a warrior or a jihadi is an easy person to study. How do you study these people? We study these people. Uh, we just uh, obtained a new grant to study neo-Nazis in Germany uh, who left uh, the, the organization and they were extensively interviewed and uh, we can see what they remember about their uh, their uh, their course, uh, how they develop, how they got drawn into this, what made them leave the movement. We, we gain insight that way. We also study a variety of uh, deradicalization programs. For example, uh, we recently completed a big study in Sri Lanka, the, tar- the Tamil Tigers. Uh, we, uh, we, we administer questionnaires and interviews to about 10,000 of them, and we see how their thinking has evolved and how it has changed. Uh, so we have a variety of different ways, both uh, in terms of uh, open source data on the Internet, uh, what people say about uh, suicide bombers. We have a new uh, article that now is being revised. Uh, we we c- conduct and study uh, uh, qualitative and quantitative interviews, and we administer questionnaires. Uh, so uh, there is a, an accumulation of, of evidence that attests to the, the kind of psychological dynamics that uh, uh, that propels this radicalization and its reversal, deradicalization. I want to ask about the reversal, but first a little bit more about the means of study. So I understand that there is this related construct, it seems related to me anyway, to the need for closure. And this is called integrative complexity. And here you don't have to study the person. Um, You study their text if they've written something or their speech. And you can just analyze the structure of the words or thoughts and determine the level of complexity in the thinking. So complexity would mean that you can see more than one point of view rather than thinking that you're only right. That would be one way in which you would be complex. Um, So when this guy um, says it's Islam over everything, that would not be a complex statement. (laughs) So is this also um, part of the research? Well, it's part of the research. uh, You know, Philip Tetlock, who studied cognitive complexity extensively, combined it actually with the need for closure. And he has a combined measure uh, that uh, taps both the need for closure, which is the motivational component, and the uh, intellectual component, which is how people actually think. Uh, but, you know, I, uh, in my way of thinking, the motivation is the driver. The motivation uh, drives your uh, predilection for simplified thinking. It's not that you are uh, – it it could also be the case that uh, you are cognitively limited. But we do not find, for example, that people who are high high on the need for closure are necessarily limited uh, intellectually. Their IQ is the same as people who are low on the need for closure. However, they think differently. So it's the motivation that manifests itself 
in a, a certain cognitive style of, of, you know, black and white categorical thinking as opposed to seeing shades of gray and having a more nuanced uh, way of uh, uh, approaching uh, problems. And I just want to point out, I was reading a paper on integrative complexity um, and violence, and, you know, their key case study is Osama bin Laden. Um, of course, they couldn't give him a questionnaire, but he gave a lot of speeches, and they showed that his um, integrative complexity went down over time leading up to the embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998 and the attack on the USS Cole. They were able to show that he was getting more extreme Very interesting. before those attacks happened. We have recently analyzed the, uh, the speeches of uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the founder of the, uh, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, uh, and other uh, other uh, Al Qaeda figures, and we found some very interesting differences between between different uh, regions. Uh, I don't know to, to what extent this is relevant to what we're talking about, but uh, Osama bin Laden uh, exhibited a high need for closure in the sense of his global outreach. People who are high on the need for closure have a tendency toward abstract and general kind of thinking, and he was exactly that. He was, uh, you know, he was in favor of this global caliphate and uh, he didn't want to compromise the ideology by doing things that would be improper, like uh, killing uh, uh, other Muslims. Uh, and and uh, he was very uh, purist in, in his ideology and very general, uh, whereas uh, people in Iraq like uh, Zarqawi and others were much more concrete and much less uh, abstract in, in their reasoning. Let me let me ask. Well, I mean, I think this gets to the point. I mean, not all of um, not every radical is the same. And I just wonder, is there a difference between, you know, someone who comes from a Muslim background, um, comes from the Middle East and ends up fighting in, you know, one of these, you know, jihadist movements as opposed to someone who comes from the U.S. like John Walker Lind, who, you know, grew up in Marin County. You know, he didn't grow up um an adherent of Islam, he, he he picked it up, you know, during this teenage transitional period. I mean, those those people probably are not the same psychologically, are they? Uh, probably not. I think it it's a, a larger step for somebody who was uh, raised in Marin County to become an Islamist who is fighting with ISIS uh, in Syria and Iraq than from somebody who was born in Syria or Iraq and joins uh, joins uh, that group. So. In a sense, uh, it suggests that these people, in terms of their personality, tend more to uh, reject uh, alternative ways of uh, so- socially accepted ways of being significant, perhaps uh, because of uh, rejection of, of their parents, or rejection of uh, society who rejected them, and so on and so forth. They want to become unique by being uh, very different from uh, th- their origins. Uh, and this is not, the, and, and I think, you know, that kind of thing. And also, uh, another difference is that once they become Muslims, they are uh, at the margins of the group. They are, they are newcomers. They have to prove themselves. They have to prove that they are really, uh, a really significant Muslims that, that they are serious about it. And uh, for example, uh, uh, Adam Yehie Gadan was like that and he became more extreme. Uh, more, more, more holier than thou. And he became, uh, of course, an important figure in Al Qaeda, uh, through this, uh, incessant quest to prove himself as uh, an extremely stern and committed, 
a Muslim. And I think, you know, if you're a Muslim, then being a Muslim is probably just a tad less important because you're born with that identity. Um, so th- there are some differences. Wait, who's Gadan? Just tell us. Um, t- you mentioned Gadan. Um, just tell us who that is. Uh, Adam Yehia Gadam uh, was uh, an American who became uh, uh, very uh, v- uh, active in Al-Qaeda propaganda. Uh, he, of course, uh, is an, as an American, uh, has f- f- uh, great fluency in English, and he was uh, uh, very active in, uh, in articulating messages to English-speaking audiences. And uh, he, he is a very important uh, figure these days in the Al-Qaeda propaganda machine. Ah, okay. Okay, got it. So another, yeah, another Westerner. Another Westerner who converted, yeah. And again, you know, he, he had a kind of confusing uh, uh, background. Uh, uh, you know, he was born to a, a Jewish uh, Christian family. Uh, his parents were hippies. Uh, he was uh, uh, educated in a variety of different places. He was seeking some identity by uh, joining a rock, a rock group, uh, a kind of a heavy metal rock group. And then he found Islam and he quickly became extremely committed to Islam and extremely violent about Islam, attacked people and so on and so forth. So it's a kind of uh, this quest for identity that finally ended uh, with, uh, with Islam as the answer uh, led him quickly to become a radicalized Islamist uh, in the effort to show, uh, I think, that uh, he is uh, extremely committed and he's ready to fight and risk his life and suffer uh, for the sake of the, of the cause. Well, let's take a turn now because, of course, some of these people do go fight and suffer and some of them um, are behind terrorist attacks. Uh, and, you know, your research also looks at what happens to a population of people who are attacked. Um, so I don't know if, you know, if this would apply to Americans who are watching what ISIS is doing on TV. I mean, if they watch a journalist um, be beheaded, um, I don't know if that would, if they would feel that same sort of attack on their own soil. But you say that um, when, when a country is attacked, it, it feels the need for closure. It feels the need for closure. And, you know, what's ironic that uh, you then... Uh get the the mirror image of uh, the psychology of the terrorist, the, ter- the psychology of the terrorist victim. Uh, there is a high need for closure, high need for clarity, high need to commit to a, an ideology that would provide quick answers, that would humiliate the enemy, that would result in victory. Uh, let's take uh, as an example the attack of 9-11 that uh, sent shockwaves throughout our society and uh, led to uh, extreme uh, focalization on security. Uh, the Patriot Act, uh, the Abu Ghraib, the, uh, you know, the, the waterboarding, all of these uh, were instances in which uh, a, a great commitment to the uh, kind of black and white commitment to the cause of security and defeating the enemy and avenging 9-11 led to disregard for uh, human rights, individual rights, uh, humanity, and so on and so forth. So, uh, in a sense, this uh, kind of stressful situation makes uh, the, the victim uh, uh, resembling the attacker uh, on some basic psychological grounds. 
And I mean, you're you're from Israel, right? I mean, I'm sure something similar is happening. Absolutely, and this is you know a great criticism within the Israeli society uh, whether uh, uh, you know these uh, extreme uh, black and white attitudes uh, aren't taking over uh, in the situation. And you know, of course, the current government of Israel is uh, uh, right uh, right wing, and uh, there is a, a tendency to. Uh, de-emphasize the possibility of peace. Uh, you know, there are no, no partners to speak with. Emphasize the need to uh, defeat the enemy, to avenge the humiliation of rockets on Tel Aviv, and so on and so forth. So uh, this kind of situation really promotes black and white thinking uh, and, and a very primordial type of response to threat. This is, I mean, it seems to me that this is hugely generalizable, this phenomenon, throughout... Uh, any number of wars. I mean, I'll just I'll just give you the really funny example, um, fictional example. But I don't know if you know Star Wars. Um, the first three movies where the Emperor takes over and he's he's really the Dark Lord, but he he rises to power because the Republic is always being attacked, and he's actually behind the fact that it's attacked. Right? Um, he's 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 coordinating the attacks on his own. Um, government so that people are terrified so that he gets more and more power. Right. No, I think, uh, you know, th- this is psychologically uh, very clever. And I think it is a general process. We are, as social and cognitive beings, we are uh, propelled uh, by pretty much uh, similar uh, motivations. Uh, and, you know, the, the people who joined the Crusades uh, uh, way back when, uh, aren't uh, motivated in a very different way from the, the foreign fighters that are now flocking to ISIS. There's about 12,000 of them, I hear. Uh, and of course, this is a huge danger uh, to the world. And the question is, uh, what can one do to uh, uh, to reverse it or to prevent it? Right. And let's go there now. So what can one do? Because if this is just basic psychology, it's something that people feel in their times of life transition, especially when they're teenagers and they don't know what to do with themselves. I mean, how can you ever I mean, really stop it? It seems like it just happens. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, it's not a, an easy task, but I think there have been uh, recent attempts in a variety of locations, particularly in Muslim countries or countries with a large Muslim uh, majority, uh, to deal with it, both uh, preventively uh, in terms of community programs that try to inoculate uh, the youngsters against the possibility of uh, uh, falling prey to these uh, uh, violent ideologies, and in terms of the radicalization of people who already committed to terrorism and now are incarcerated, uh, detained in various centers. And there have been some uh, uh, some stories of uh, of uh, success or, or partial success. Uh, you know, there's a very well-known uh, program in Saudi Arabia uh, that claims uh, successes. Uh, they have uh, released thousands of uh, people uh, who uh, they, uh, on their estimation, have been de-radicalized. Uh, the, the program in Sri Lanka uh, that I uh, mentioned is releasing uh, thousands of uh, Tamil Tiger fighters into the communities. So there are ways of uh, uh, dealing with, with uh, uh, radicalization. And I think uh, uh, there are basically two factors that matter. One is the ideological factor, and the second one is the motivational factor. Uh, the ideological factor is to show that uh, the ways of violence are unacceptable on on uh, on uh, uh, ethical grounds. So, for example, 
in the radicalization programs in Muslim countries, clerics uh, engage the detainees in dialogue about the uh, interpretation, the correct interpretation of the Quran and the Hadith. And uh, uh, to the extent that uh, the detainees can be uh, persuaded that uh, that their uh, um, fundamentalist uh, jihadist interpretation has been incorrect, that uh, could uh, p- promote their radicalization. More important uh, to my mind is the motivational factor. That is, they have to find alternative ways of being significant, making a contribution uh, other than violence. And uh, Showing that violence really doesn't lead to uh, to uh, honor, and uh, to uh, the contrary, it brings about stigma and humiliation. And uh, alternative ways uh, can be found. For example, uh, in some of these programs, there is an effort to provide vocational education, to provide uh, ways for them to be reintegrated into society. And in some cases, uh, in many cases, it's something that can work. Got it. Well, at least at least that's hopeful. So, but I think you've given us uh, really a great understanding of this phenomenon and maybe even some solutions. So, I think that's a good place to end. Um, and I just want to thank you, Ari Kurglansky, for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure. So one of the things that really struck me in that conversation is this notion that Osama bin Laden, as you know, the time approached uh, before the bombings of the USS Cole and the embassies, that you know, in his speeches, you saw a decrease in the cognitive complexity of what he's talking about. So this made me wonder whether this is a cause or effect of rigid thinking. So you know, is it is it that his thinking becomes more rigid, and and so therefore you know he sort of he shows this kind of lowering of IQ, or does rigid thinking itself cause you to sort of have a lower IQ. I mean, it's kind of know, just interesting thing for me to think about. Yeah, well, but it's, it's fluctuating. So non close to attacks, he's somewhat more complex. And interestingly, let me just add that they also tried to do this for the 9-11 attacks. And there were too few speeches to analyze in the run up. So they had a trend towards de- decreasing uh it's called integrative complexity, cognitive complexity, but they only had two data points, and I think it wasn't significant, or they weren't willing to make enough of it. So, I mean, it, it makes sense to me. I think it's probably in both directions. I think if you resolved to carry out an attack, then you probably want to rationalize it, which would lead you to not be able to see the perspective of the people you're about to attack. Um, I also think that not being able to see the perspective of other people makes you maybe more likely <laughs> to attack them. So, uh, you know, I mean... Yeah, and, uh, you know, since it's close to the end of the show, we might have lost a few listeners along the way. I'm going to go out on a limb here and speculate wildly <laughs> that, you know, this is something that I, I think is related to this notion of free will, right? So there's a big debate in neuroscience about whether free will is a thing or if it's an illusion, and I think it all depends on how you define it. But I also think that, you know, you have some control over what your the future of your brain is going to look like based on how you use it today. So if we understand that rigid thinking is going to lower your IQ in the future, well, that's a, you know, if you're interested in maintaining some kind of level of intelligence, then maybe, you know, thinking in a more nuanced way and not going down into this rut of sitting sitting around and thinking about the same thing is a way to ensure that you have a better brain later on. And in that way, it's kind of using your free will to um, ensure that in the future, you have uh, the ability to make better decisions and better choices. 
Yeah, there's no doubt you can change people's brain. And in the interview, when when he talks about the de-radicalization programs that appear to have worked in, for instance, Sri Lanka, I mean, people are released. And they're released in part because they're, they're assessed as having less of this extreme rigidity. Uh, so, you know, they're actually psychologically measuring them and they're helping them adjust and they're help, helping them see the world in a less black and white way. Uh, so that, I mean, that is undoubtedly changing their brains over time. I mean, you do, you do it once, you say, did you realize there are more than one ways of looking at this topic? <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, that's not really going to necessarily do a lot, but over a long period of time, yeah. Yeah, and exposing yourself to people who disagree with you so that you make right. sure that your thinking continues to be nuanced as opposed to and, rigid. And going and traveling the world and meeting all, all different cultures. All this has those, those effects. Yes, and not worrying about those trolls. <laughs> right, right. And me, talking to everyone except trolls. Yeah. Okay, so that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, but you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Podcast. and yes, we want to hear your dissenting opinion, so don't worry about that. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, cookie recipes, or anything else to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. They have over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more. And these courses are available for digital download and streaming or on a DVD or CD or app on your iPhone, which is how I do it. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace. No pressure, no homework, no exams. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one course, Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Professor Mark Leary. So please go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.